invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. It's on page 827 in these uh, Bibles from the pews. If you've not been here with us or with us in a while, we've been looking off and on at various parables in the New Testament. Someone uh, has written that a simple definition of a parable or a simple description is it's an, uh, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Uh, and that's, that's a good observation. Uh, many of the parables Jesus told and most of his teaching was in parables uh, were in response to questions. But this is not one of those. Uh, this one is not in response to a question, uh, but more to hostility that was growing between him and the religious leaders at this time in his ministry. Hear the word of God, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, your word you describe as a light to our path. Uh, We ask now that you would use this to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this parable is not, in, not given in response to a question. Last week we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and that was said in response to a man who had said, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus had answered that question with the parable. Here, the kingdom of God, says Jesus, may be compared to a king who, who gives an abundant, rich feast. And not just any feast, but a wedding feast. And not just any wedding, but the wedding of the son of a king, a royal feast. Now, typical, from what I've read, the feasting would go on for days and be accompanied by singing and and laughter and dancing and celebration. And so you would think that pretty much anyone would be honored to get such an invitation. They would have been delighted to go and participate at an event like this. Before I go any further, though, I want you to see, and I want to ask you, do you see the kingdom of God as a feast? The kingdom of God is wherever Christ rules. He said to his disciples, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So when you're a follower of Christ, you are part of the kingdom. 
you're part of the kingdom, and he says that it is a feast. Often today, the kingdom is not seen as a feast. It's seen more of a place of deprivation and rigid rules and thou shalt not, and certainly no fun or celebration. And that's what the world wants us to believe. It describes itself as, as offering fulfillment and joy and that it is a feast when in reality it is nothing. I read where Jack Higgins, who was at the top of his writing career after a, writing a novel that became a bestseller that then became a Hollywood movie, and he said, I wish someone had told me that when one gets to the top, there is nothing there. That's, uh, that's what the world offers. It offers, uh, it said, oh, this will be the feast. And yet, God's kingdom is a feast. So the invitation goes forth. The nature of the invitation is, is just wide open. It's broad. It's, it's, it's only, everything is ready. Come. It doesn't say, you're assigned to bring vegetables, and you'll bring dessert, and the king will provide the meat. No, you don't need to bring anything. Everything is ready. Come to the feast. So it's a simple invitation. There's nothing lacking on God's part for salvation for sinners. One person wrote, the father is ready to love and receive. The son is ready to pardon and cleanse guilt away. The spirit is ready to sanctify and renew. The angels are ready to rejoice over the sinner who repents. Grace is ready to assist him. The Bible is ready to instruct him. And heaven is ready to be his everlasting home. So everything is ready. Only one thing is needed. You must be willing to accept. The gospel places an open door in front of all of us. Well, notice the responses. The first response is just when people decide not to come. They apparently don't even say anything except no. If you read it closely, if you read verse 3 and following closely, they've already see, received apparently an invitation. Now the servants are going out and saying, okay, it's time now. They got the save the date probably six weeks ago. Now they're saying, it's ready. The feast is ready. The meat's been slaughtered. It's all been prepared. Now's the time to come. Now, as I mentioned, the normal response to such an invitation would be delight, honor, glad to come. And so if we had been listening to this that day, we would have found even what Jesus was saying, how he describes this, is, is unnatural and strange, even bizarre, uh, because they, they don't come. He's obviously describing the leadership of Israel. They had not responded to God's summons to honor his son. So in verse 4, more servants are sent to inform the invited that things are ready. But still, they just, they just slough it off. Well, the second response in verse 5, some of these paid no attention. They're indifferent. They did not care. Even those who show concern choose to go about their daily activities without really any compelling reason to come to the feast. One goes to his farm, it says. One deals with his business. It's not like there's anything urgent. It's not as though it says, well, there was a fire in the barn at the farm so the man couldn't go, or the business was in great danger so he couldn't go. No, it's just day to day. Well, I, I've got a farm to tend to, or I've got a business to tend to. I'm not interested in attending the wedding feast. They simply did not care. That's many of us that have grown up here in the South. That's often the response toward the gospel. That described me. 
That described me when I was growing up. I, I didn't have any intellectual problems with Christianity. I wasn't smart enough to be an atheist, I didn't think. And I, you know, it, it, it seemed true. I just had my mind on other things. I was just more interested in the things that the world offered, and they seemed more important and more pressing. I, I remember as a high school student meeting a person who was much like me. This is after I started walking with Christ, and I was with a Christian ministry, and we were in Panama City Beach during spring break. It was cold, and so people weren't swimming, but there was plenty of other things to do. And we were at a place, and we were talking to people about Christ and talking to college students and if they wanted to follow Christ. I remember talking to one fellow. He was very friendly, and, and we got to talking about the gospel. And I said, would you like to trust Christ? And uh, he, he had been very compliant, very open, and very interested up to that point. And he went, now? It was Monday. <laughs> I mean, he was serious. He's like, now? Right now? Here? Uh, no, no. I mean, he had other plans. He was preoccupied, and it wasn't a farm and a business, but he had other plans, and he did not want to be distracted from those at the time. So notice also, I, one of the commentators pointed out, the things that preoccupy them are not evil. There's nothing harmful or sinful about farming or business. It's just that they took priority. And I read where one writer said, the pursuits of this world only become harmful when they supersede the pursuit of God. So he let the, they let those normal things, farming, business, supersede the acceptance of the invitation. Many today reject the gospel just for flimsy excuses. Uh, they say they're too busy for spiritual things. They say they have business or work or, or children. or all, all of us, your life doesn't get any less complicated as it goes along. I haven't found it that way. There are plenty of things that consume our time and interest and we worry about and anxiety. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher of the 1800s, told of a man who owned a ship. He was a merchant. And he was visited by a godly man, and this godly man asked this person, Well, sir, what is the state of your soul? Basically, he was extending to him the invitation to the wedding feast. And the man responded, Soul? I have no time to take care of my soul. I barely have enough time to take care of my ships. And then Spurgeon said, Well, he had enough time to die, which he did about a week after that. James Boyce said, There are thousands, millions of people who hear the gospel and yet derive no benefit, whatever. They listen to it Sunday after Sunday and year after year and do not believe so that their souls are saved. It is not as though they hate it or believe that it is not true. They just, not, they just do not receive it into their hearts. They like other things better. Their hobbies, their interests, their things, their money, their family, their business, their pleasures are all far more interesting to them. It is an awful state to be in, he wrote, but it is also awfully common, isn't it? Other things just seem more interesting. So I'll, before I go any further, will you search your heart this morning? Do you fit that pattern possibly? Are you just more interested in other things? They just hold your attention and your devotion and Christianity or accepting the invitation to the kingdom just looks trivial by comparison. Well, let's look at the third response. Now we move to a more we move from passivity to activity and it becomes hostile. Verse 6, he says, some of the people that had received the invitation, they seized his servants, they treated them shamefully, and they killed them. 
They obviously do not respect the king or fear him. These represent those who are the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they are hostile toward the truth. They may be in church, to use today's analogies. They may give of their money and their time, but they do not believe in the gospel, and when it's presented to them, they resist it, and often they do it violently. They seize as serpents. They mistreated them and killed them. I have a friend who years ago served at a pastor, uh, as a pastor at a uh, church in our denomination that, that was a, an older church. Uh, I mean, it had been there a long time, and it was a, you know, a couple of hundred people. And there was an older person in the church who was close to death. And this pastor, who was very much an evangelist, he was very good at communicating the gospel and leading people to Christ, He went by to see this person, and while he was there with this older church member who was uh, very, very sick, he asked the person about their soul, whether they were right with God, whether this person was right with God. I don't remember where the conversation went from there, but the family later was furious. How dare you ask our mother, who has been a church member for decades, about her relationship with Christ? Can you imagine? He was concerned about her soul, and they took offense that he would even ask her. Now, maybe he was offensive. I don't know. I didn't find him that way. uh, Maybe he did. Maybe he said the wrong words or had the wrong demeanor, but I doubt it. They just didn't want it. The very idea of talking about it was an insult, they felt. Well, that's how it was with the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And so here he uses it back to the wedding feast. They kill these servants. They're violently opposed to them. And the point is, if they felt that way toward the messengers, they felt more so toward the king. They would have killed him if they could have gotten their hands on him. How did people respond to the invitation of the king in the Old Testament? Well, we have a, a history of prophets who were killed, Elijah. During his time, hundreds of God's prophets are slaughtered. Isaiah was killed. Zechariah was stoned at the altar. Messenger after messenger is killed. Then we go to the New Testament. John the Baptist has his head cut off. Jesus was crucified. James was the first of the apostles to die after being beheaded. And then history tells us, credible history tells us, that all of the disciples except for John died as martyrs. So that's how... In Jesus' day, even, and this is, we ought to think about this, especially as, as church people. I'm always keenly aware that the main opposition to Christ came from those who were religious. And as Jesus approached Jerusalem, in the, in the next chapter, I'm, I'm going ahead to Matthew 23, you don't need to turn there, but as he goes into Jerusalem for the last time, and soon after will be arrested, crucified, so forth, This is what he said. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of God's people, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He's not talking to the Romans at that point. He's not saying, oh, Rome, oh, Rome. He's saying, oh, Jerusalem, the people of God, You who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. Sent to do what? Sent to offer the invitation. Well, how does the king respond? 
Back to the passage, verse 7, he's not happy. He says he's angry. He sends his troops. They destroy the murderers. They burn their city. That recalls Old Testament judgments when they would burn cities as a sign of God's judgment. So there are two responses from the religious community toward Jesus in his day. Indifference and hostility. That about sums it up. They either ignored him or hated him. And both bring the judgment of God. So the king reissues the invitation. Now the good news. You would think the king may say, okay, it's over with. Cancel the feast. But no, because a few would not come, he extends it to whosoever will in verses 8 and 9. The rejection by Israel now means open to the world. All are now invited. And he sends those messengers out from city to city to village to village, ordinary people who would not normally be invited to a royal feast. Now they're invited. In the Gospel of Luke, we have a parallel account, and it puts a little bit more emphasis on those for whom they are to search. There the king says, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, the last people you would think would be at a royal feast. And that's who the king now says, Go find those people and bring them here. Verse 10 says, They retrieve all that they can, both good and bad. In other words, they gather many whom the religious community would have not found acceptable, either because of ethnic reasons or moral reasons or ceremonial reasons. Here is the point, and I love the way Bishop J.C. Ryle expressed it over 100 years ago. He said, God invites all who will come to his feast of love, forgiveness, peace, joy, purpose, and eternal life. No one is excluded. However wicked, twisted, perverse, or violent, it does not matter. The invitation is full, broad, and unlimited. Would you like to be invited to this royal feast? You are. No one is excluded. The invitation is extended to you. Be part of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Today the invitation reads, Whoever will come upon the, call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So no excuses remain. We are all invited. You cannot say, well, I would have trusted Christ, but I was not invited. I was not included. However far you may think you have plunged into sin and rebellion and that you may think I'm too far gone, God is too distant from me, no, come, he says. Enjoy my banquet. If we miss it, we have nobody to blame but ourselves. Now, you'd think the parable would end there. In fact, when I was reading it, I thought this would be the right place to stop, but it doesn't. It continues in verse 11, and now the wide-angle camera zooms in on one particular person, a person who's there at the banquet. The king goes in, and they welcome the people into this great hall, and they, they tell, as would have been customary, each person to put on wedding garments. The, the king would have provided those he expects them to wear those. What are they? One, they're clean, but secondly, they cover up who's rich and poor. So the emphasis would not be on any kind of social class there. Every guest can, in a sense, hide behind the clothes received from the king. 
spiritually speaking, as you know, throughout the New Testament, we have reference to the, the wedding garments are the righteousness in Christ, that when we come to faith in him, his perfect obedience to God law, God's law, his obedience clothes us. It's like, as Colossians says, put on these things to take his garment, his robes of righteousness, and put, God puts those on us. And the king would have provided those. So the only way we approach God is through the righteousness of Christ, not through our own. But apparently this man in the parable does not realize that. So the king asked him, he's not dressed correctly. He says, how is it that you came in here with no wedding clothes? And the man is speechless. And as a child, I found myself in this position many times when I had no defense, when I'd done something wrong. And my mother or dad would say, what is this? The evidence was there. Well, the king says, what are you doing in here with those clothes on? And the man is speechless. He knows what he's doing. He knows that he's, he's not there with the right garments. And the king responds, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus now moves the parable abruptly from this man to a description of final judgment, of hell. It is here Jesus speaks the phrase, for many are called, but few are chosen. Perhaps you've heard that many times, but maybe you haven't associated it with this parable. What does that mean? God's calling clearly corresponds with the king's invitation. The invitation went out to both the original guest list, which was Israel, Judah, and then to mankind in general. All the guests are called there because of the generosity of the king. Yet few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Not all who are invited will accept. Not all who hear will believe. Not all who receive the invitation will respond. Few does not mean that it's just an absolute tiny number. It means compared to those who are invited, few are chosen. Now the Chosen, the subject, is, is God. God is the one who does the choosing. So the Bible always teaches this balance between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. It doesn't try to really explain either one of them. It makes that assumption. And so we are responsible. He invites us. He requires that we come intending to honor his son. And all who do are guaranteed a place at the table. A feast beyond compare. I want to close with a question. Where are you in this parable? Uh, we have some old family pictures, and I have them from when I was young. My mother would always save the, the pictures, and now we take more pictures, but you can never look at them. Back then we took fewer pictures, but you got them in books, and you can look at them. And there would be composite pictures of kindergarten or the first grade or the football team or, the, or whatever. And what do we do when we look at a composite picture? We look for it. Where am I? Where am I in the picture? Oh, there I am. That's you? My kids, that's you? Yeah, that's, that's me. Okay, so we look at a parable and we think, where am I in this parable? We're certainly not the king and we're not the son. Maybe we're those who are hearing the invitation. How will you respond? With indifference, with uh, preoccupation, I've just got other things to do that seem more important. Uh, or hostility, 
No, I, 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 don't, I don't, for whatever reason, just hostile toward it. Or will you accept it? Or maybe you look in the picture and you're one of the servants. In our role as followers of Christ, we don't create the invitation. We don't dream it up. We don't create the event. We just offer the invitation to others. We just say here, on behalf of the king, you are invited to the feast. That's what we do. We take the good news to others. We don't invent it. And so lest you think that you have to be trained with a master's degree to talk to other people about Christ or explain the Bible, no, you just take the invitation. You can improve your skill as to how to say things and communicate clearly to make sure that it's not too complicated and to keep things simple. Let me tell you, there's still a great many people have not heard the invitation. We know, when you think of world demographics, that we're told about there's seven, maybe seven and a half billion people in the world. And now, I mean, you think about Google Earth and other things, and the U.S. Center for World Missions, when it was in existence, they took the entire planet and could drill down to where they could take a square yard in Siberia and tell you how many people lived in that house and what religion they professed. So our global statistics are pretty accurate, pretty accurate as far as those who profess Christ. I mean, they're, they're, they're much more than just a wild guess. So out of the seven and close to seven and a half billion people, high estimates, and these are real high, of those who would profess some form of Christianity is roughly four and a half billion people. So more than half the world's population would at least claim to be Christians. We can't read people's hearts, but that's what it may be on paper. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the issue, though, and this is what you have to look at. You say, oh, wow, seven and a half billion, four and a half claim to be Christians. We are really on our way to fulfilling the Great Commission. The Great Commission says make disciples of all nations, ethne, people groups. It's not just geographical boundaries. So within the United States, there may be hundreds of ethne or people groups that have their own language, they have their own culture, they have their own subculture, and so forth. There are 17,000 people groups in the world. 17,000. Now, missiologists tell us that of those 17,000, still 7,000 have no access to the invitation. 7,000 out of 17,000 have no access to the good news. In other words, they don't rub shoulders with Christians. They don't have access through media to Christians. They don't have churches where they live. They, in some cases, it's geographical. More often than not, it's political, geopolitical, uh, why they're cut off. Let me now, let me drill it down a little further and to make it more personal. If all 4.5 billion Christians tomorrow talk to one person about Christ and that person was receptive, there would still be 3.6 billion who've never heard. Now, I just confused you because you said, wait a minute, 4.5 billion, each person talked to one. What that means is we couldn't have one-to-one out of the 4.5 billion 
we don't have enough people. Some of us would talk, the same person would be talked to by several Christians. So that means 3.3.5 billion have no access. That meant if all 4.5 billion Christians said, I'm going to talk to somebody, I don't know about Christ, they couldn't get to those others, not without great risk and without great intentionality. I was talking with a man who works with a church planting network in another country, primarily Muslim country, that has great openness and freedom, freedom to worship, freedom to, to have Bibles and so forth. And he, he told me on the phone, he said, because uh, when I was hearing about this, he said, we are starting Presbyterian churches, and we need Presbyterian pastors. Now, in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA, we have almost 5,000 people like me, pastors. We're called teaching elders. We're ordained to be pastors. 5,000. We have 1,700 churches. Did you just hear that? So it's almost three to one. You have a lot of pastors that don't have churches. You have, you know, so there's a glut of pastors. Don't follow that to its logical conclusion, please, especially those on the finance committee around here. But, I mean, there's, you know, like that. And I said, you would think people would jump at this opportunity. And he said, you would be astounded. Nobody wants to come. Nobody wants to come to bring the invitation with a wide open door. So the king is saying, I'm going to have a wedding feast. I don't mean to end on a negative note. We should pray for laborers. Isn't that what Christ said? The fields are ripe and ready for the harvest. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up workers for the harvest. That prayer is still needed today. The king is saying, I'm going to have a wedding feast. And it's going to be beyond your imagination. And I want you to go and I want you to invite everyone, everyone to accept the invitation and to come. Let's pray together. Our Father, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have we been able to imagine what you have prepared for those who love you. We pray in the time that we have that you describe as brief, that our lives are as a vapor and that they are so transient. We are here today and then gone, that we would invest that in being in messengers for the King to get forth the invitation. Here, elsewhere, every opportunity we have, fam, family, friends, neighbors, those who come from afar that live here, the immigrant, those at whom we meet and we go somewhere to eat, other places, may we look for opportunities uh, just to be inviters. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.